Hi everyone, welcome to our latest Lawcast. Uh, in this episode, we're looking at ESG and trustee duty. As we've spoken about this issue before, and uh, as a lot of you will be aware, the trustees of some of our largest schemes have been grappling with how to approach ESG uh, in investing and in, and in broader sense for a while now. Uh, as TCFD reporting and, and member awareness increases, um, it's something that really we think it's time for all schemes to to make sure they're up to date on uh, as, we, uh, as those legislative regimes kind of come out into the, the smaller market that a lot of us are involved in day to day. So today what we're going to do is we're going to cover uh, with Tebow a recap on the law as it stands at the moment on fiduciary duty and ESG and then Chris is going to give us that update on, on some recent cases uh, in England and Wales. And just at the end I'm going to have a look at some other jurisdictions just to see what other challenges we might be able to anticipate from their own case law. Um, so straight over to Tebow then to kind of bring us up to speed. Thanks Jay. So I'm going to be taking a dive into where things are with the law, the established position and where it comes from before handing over to Chris, who will be talking about the most recent developments. So putting aside legislation and the scheme's own rules, when we're looking at this sort of thing, we're looking at case law as the first port of call. And the first place we look is still Cowan and Scargill. So in that case, Arthur Scargill didn't want the scheme to invest overseas or invest in any company that competed with coal, particularly oil. One of his arguments was that the economic benefits of investing in the UK economy rather than overseas was to the broader benefit of the scheme's beneficiaries. And the same was true in avoiding investment in competitors of the sponsoring employer. The court held that the duty of the trustees was to act in the best interest of the beneficiaries and if the purpose of the trust was the provision of financial benefits, that meant the power of investment should be exercised in the best financial interests of the beneficiaries. That line's been taken to mean that, self-evidently, trustees shouldn't be imposing their own views or biases on the investment decision process. That's an irrelevant factor. You're doing the best you can for your members, not using the scheme as a vehicle for your own personal crusade. And most importantly, trustees should not be considering ESG factors if they conflict with the financial interests of the beneficiaries, i.e. you shouldn't in this case be making a decision for a non-financial reason, but the corollary to that is that you can for a financial reason. Now that case hasn't really been tested properly since, hence the interest in any new case law that comes out. The MNRPF case in 2015 did look at it, and took the view that acting in the best interests of the beneficiaries was actually just a part of and shouldn't be divorced from the proper purpose principle. Essentially, that you should only exercise a power for the proper purpose it was given to you. But really, that's just getting to the same point uh, as Cowan and Scargill. Um, as the MNRPF case agreed that the purpose of a pension trust is generally to provide for members' retirement, so you still end up coming back to exercising the power of investment in the beneficiary's best financial interests. But that raises the question, what does best financial interests actually mean? In Cohen and Scargill, the judge argued that the investment power must be exercised so as to yield the best return for the beneficiaries, judged in relation to the risks of the investments in question. But that's where you can start to see the age of Cowan and Scargill starting to show. Older cases often viewed investment as purely a question of income, profit and return. Indeed, even capital appreciation could be seen as a little racy in historical cases. However, this is now seen as too narrow a view of investment. And in recent years, case law has caught up and indicated a more flexible approach can be taken. 
So on that basis, I think it's now safe to say three things. Firstly, that best financial interests does not mean that the decision has, has to generate a financial return and profits need not be a driver of a particular investment. For example, I think it's pretty clear that risk reduction can be in a member's best financial interests. Hedging can and um, often does generate a loss if uh, the portfolio as a whole is doing well. But these days, any reasonable observer will probably agree that it still amounts to an investment that can be in the beneficiary's best financial interests. The second point that flows from this is that someone's best financial interests can be very different depending on their circumstances. A 25-year-old is in a very different position and has very different financial needs to a pensioner who has paid off their mortgage. The same is true of pension schemes, and this is reflected in investment regulations, which say that scheme policies on ESG should be measured over an appropriate time horizon for the scheme in question. The third point is that um, trustees shouldn't look through a prism of ESG, non-ESG factors, rather it's financial and non-financial factors. If an ESG factor has a financial impact on the scheme, then of course it can be looked at by trustees. And if it's a material financial factor, then um, I would say it must be taken into account in the decision-making process. For example, a scheme with a long time horizon might want to divest from fossil fuels because of the effect they have on the environment generally, which would be a non-financial factor. However, there is also a financial reason for the scheme in divesting, such as the ability to sell the asset, volatility of price or legal risk that comes with owning it. It is that that allows a trustee to decide that for financial reasons, now is an appropriate time to divest themselves of that asset. So in some cases though, trustees may want to consider non-financial factors, such as improving members' quality of life or showing disapproval of certain industries. But these non-financial factors may have a detrimental financial impact on the scheme. The Law Commission looked at this and concluded that that should be possible so long as trustees followed what has become known as the two-stage test. So the first stage is trustees should have a good reason to think that scheme members would share, that, share their concern. And the second step is the decision should not involve the risk of significant financial detriment. It's important to note that this is an and, not an or. Both limbs of the test need to be satisfied. And also that this test isn't law. That being said, um, the recent Palestine case did look at this and in that the judgment supported the Law Commission test, but that can only be said with some caveats. So the judgment said there appears now to be a general acceptance that the criteria proposed by the Law Commission are lawful and appropriate, but that was a passing comment rather than the core of the judgment. It was a case dealing with a local government pension scheme, not a private sector occupational scheme. And probably most unfortunately, the judge actually used slightly different wording for his version of the test when he said he approved of the Law Commission test to the Law Commission's wording. So the Law Commission says that the decision must not involve any risk of significant financial detriment. The judgment wording reverses that and says not involve significant risk of financial detriment. So significant risk versus any risk and financial detriment versus significant financial detriment. So where does that leave us? We're unsure about the Law Commission as it's not law and there are doubts on the utility of the Palestine case. So can we look behind the Law Commission's analysis to see where those two limbs come from 
and see if they might by themselves allow a trustee to consider non-financial factors. The first limb is whether members share the same non-financial concerns. This stems from Cohen and Scargill and a caveat that the judge added to the argument that beneficiaries' best financial interests were paramount. He said, benefit does not solely mean financial benefit. Rather, he formed the view that if the beneficiaries were all adults with very strict views on moral, moral and social matters, beneficiaries might well consider that it was far better to receive less than to receive more money from what they consider to be evil and tainted sources. However, the judge caveated his caveat, saying this would be a very rare occurrence, and more worryingly for a trustee at least, under a trust for the provision of financial benefits, the burden would rest, and rest heavy, on him who asserts that it is for the benefit of the beneficiaries as a whole to receive less by reason of the exclusion of some more profitable forms of investment. So as you can see, this does seem stricter than the first limb of the Law Commission's test, which just requires satisfying yourself that the members share the concern. To me, the test set out in case law is whether all members do support the cause, and this is a significant and most probably insurmountable hurdle to jump for most pension schemes. So what about the second limb of the test? The genesis for that is also from old cases. Cohen again, and a charity case called Harris and Church Commissioners, or the Bishop of Oxford case, as it's known. In that latter case, the Church Commissioners were paying stipends out of their char charitable trust, but some beneficiaries were concerned that when making investment decisions, the commissioners were guided too rigorously by purely financial considerations, and that the commissioners gave insufficient weight to ethical considerations, which should be important to them as the underlying purpose for which they held their assets is the promotion of the Christian faith throughout the Church of England. The challenge went that the commissioners should not exercise their investment functions in a manner which would be incompatible with that Christian purpose, even if that involved a risk of incurring significant financial detriment. However, the judge disagreed. He did think that a charity trustee could accommodate the non-financial moral views of those who thought that an investment conflicted with the ultimate purpose of the charity, but only if the trustees are satisfied that that course would not involve a risk of significant financial detriment. Now, clearly, that matches the second limb of the Law Commission's test, but in this case, the judge then went on to draw a clear distinction between the sort of charity case he was considering and a pensions trust, where the purpose was the provision of financial benefits to individuals. So again, it's not clear cut that this can be relied on. So I think from this, you can still see the difficulties in using non-financial factors, but do either of the two new cases change the position? Chris is going to talk about them. Thanks, Tebow. The first case I'm going to look at is the High Court's decision in March in the Butler-Sloss case. It's important to remember that the Butler-Sloss case is a charities, not a pensions case. Here, the High Court approved the charity trustee's proposal to adopt an investment policy which aimed to align their investments with the goals of the Paris Agreement, and in doing so, ensure consistency with their charitable purposes. They had sought the High Court's approval because the new policy carried a risk, at least in the short term, that it would result in lower investment terms for the Trust. The judge also provided much needed clarity, for charity trustees at least, on the leading charities case on ethical investments, that being the Bishop of Oxford case that Thibault touched on. Namely, whether an investment that conflicted with the charity's purposes was automatically excluded or still subject to the trustee's discretion. The judge held that the Bishop of Oxford case did not lay down an absolute prohibition on making investments that directly conflict with the charity's purposes. Instead, 
he ruled that charity trustees have discretion in relation to the exercise of their powers of investment where an investment potentially conflicts with their charitable purposes, meaning that a potential conflict is a relevant factor which they can balance against other factors, including risk of financial detriment when making investments. The charity trustees could also take into account the risk of losing support from donors and damage to the reputation of the charity against the financial detriment itself. Unfortunately, the Butler's Loss decision has very few implications for pension schemes and offers no clarification about ethical investments for pension scheme trustees either. Although both charities and occupational pension schemes are set up under trust, the judge was clear from the outset that he was only concerned with the ethical investment of charities. In reaching his decision, he even drew a distinction between trustees of charities and trustees of pension schemes, noting that one of the key pension cases, the Cowan and Scargill case, which Tipsy both spoke about, involved a trust for the provision of financial benefits to individuals, not for a charitable purpose. As such, the decision is regarded by many as a bit of a missed opportunity for pension schemes to further clarify the position on ethical investing. However, the Butler's Loss case is a helpful reminder of the thorny issues surrounding ethical investments by pension schemes and the tricky balancing act which pension scheme trustees face between pursuing good financial outcomes on one hand and satisfying other competing pressures. Against this backdrop, clarification of the courts around the extent to which pension scheme trustees can take into account non-financial factors when deciding on investments would be very welcome. However, in light of the limited application of the Butler's Loss ruling, if and when that clarification will come, is far from clear. Now, the other recent case that I'm going to look at, which had the potential to answer a few ESG decision-making questions, was McGaughy versus USSL. Again, this case was not concerned with a real examination of ESG issues as such. Rather, this was a permissions hearing to decide whether or not two members could mount a derivative claim against the named past and present directors of the trustee company USSL by stepping into its shoes, as it were. So this was not a full trial, rather a preliminary step through which the claimant had to satisfy the court that the criteria for a preliminary claim was satisfied, and the judgment also looked at whether there was a prima facie case on each of the particular claims. One of those claims was that the trustee had continued to invest in fossil fuels without a plan for this investment and had suffered loss as a result and should have adopted an immediate plan for this investment. Furthermore, in making those decisions, it was being alleged that they had failed to consider as relevant factors a member survey and calls by the lecturers union that they should disinvest. The members, however, failed on this claim, as they did all their claims, to get through the initial criteria of whether it could be a derivative claim. They were unable to show that the trustee company had suffered any loss. Even then, the judge thought it was quite likely that the claim would have been struck out on its merits if it progressed in any event. His views was that the decisions the trustees made in relation to their investments were within its investment discretion, much like the charity trustees in the Butler's Loss case, and had de demonstrated evidence that it satisfied the legal requirements around the investment decision-making process. So the case itself does not necessarily advance our understanding of the current position other than to reinforce the contention that trustees have considerable discretion provided they follow the correct process and have the audit trail to back up their decisions. One other point to note is that the judge referred to Karen Scargill, commenting that the claimants had not alleged that the company had the duty to sell fossil fuels for ethical reasons, no doubt because the court projected such an argument in Karen Scargill itself and had approached the issue from the financial perspective instead. So both the Butler's Loss case and the McGorry cases show that the investment principles discussed in Karen Scargill are still relevant today. This has just been a quick overview of the main ESG themes coming out of both of these cases. If you'd like to read more about either case, 
They're featured in the CMS Pensions third edition of the Investment and Risk Briefing, which is also being published this month. Now back to Jay, who is going to talk about a recent US case, which may be a future relevance too, before moving on to some closing remarks. Thanks very much, Chris, and, and, and thanks to Thibaut for that uh, great work in bringing us up to date to where we are today on these issues. Just before we close, I was going to have a quick look at a couple of cases outside the UK, um, as Chris mentioned, just to see how other jurisdictions are looking at these issues and looking at things like trustee duty, fiduciary duty, um, and which factors can be taken into account when investing. A couple of cases I wanted to mention actually about defined contribution schemes um, and obviously trustee duty shouldn't be forgotten there and some of our largest schemes in the UK are on the DC side and are, and are considering these points. The first one was McVeigh, that's actually an Australian case McVeigh and this was an interesting case where a member brought various actions against the trustee um, suggesting the trustee wasn't properly taking into account climate change in particular. And although the court never came to a final view on this case because it settled as part of that settlement, the scheme issued statements indicating that it now it agreed formally and publicly that climate change could lead to catastrophic economic and social consequences and therefore is an important concern of the scheme members. And as such, it was it was important for the trustee to actively identify and manage that risk, i.e. the risk of climate change. Now, I think it's interesting in that formulation of wording that was settled upon that there is this focus on economic and social consequences. So the idea that social consequences there although it doesn't drill into whether they are financial or non-financial factors, but there seems to be a broadening of what the trustee will take into account uh, in its investment in its investment mandates. And lastly, just before we close, uh, I wanted to mention Hughes and Northwestern University. This is a US Supreme Court case from earlier this year. Again, a DC case that dealt with a lot of very complex issues around how to bring and who can bring proceedings in the US, which we won't go into. But one point that was interesting from this case that's of general relevance is the the fact that with this uh, pension scheme set up, there were hundreds of, of DC funds that were available for members to invest in. Uh, and the court was clear that uh, it's not sufficient just to have funds on a menu uh, for the trustee to have then resolved or, or, or to have met their fiduciary duty. There's more to it than that. You can't just sort of put options on and, and, and expect that to be enough to say that you've kind of covered everyone's concerns. That fiduciary duty, I think this goes back to the points that Thibaut was making at the beginning, but that fiduciary duty extends to kind of managing that huge list of funds, making sure that the options do properly manage all risks uh, and costs for members. So there's something there. So this idea perhaps that we're seeing, uh, although the case didn't cover this specifically, this idea that we've been talking about with greenwashing or the idea that just more and more funds can be added to the list and that's enough was quite clearly rejected there by the US Supreme Court. It's a big issue. We'll leave it there for today. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, and do join us again in four weeks time at the end of October for our next broadcast. Thanks very much.